Welcome to the Root and Remedy podcast, where we discuss all things women's health, hormones, fertility, and body confidence. I'm your host, Vanessa, a woman's health and fertility nutritionist and the co-founder of Root and Remedy Wellness. You can find our courses, free community group, and all other resources at rootandremedywellness.com. So we left off in part one just about to get into Roe v. Wade. So I want to give you the floor. Can you explain to us what that was, what happened? Give us the lowdown. Definitely. So we talked a lot about the context for the time in which Roe v. Wade happened. Now, this is a U.S. Supreme Court case. We're going to get into some of the legal details of it. But of course, this is not a constitutional law podcast. So I'm going to do my very best to sort of hit the high points. And you just stop me anytime you want a little bit more detail and I'll do my best to fill in the blanks. So in 1970, there was a 21-year-old pregnant woman living in Texas and her name was Norma McCorvey, better known as Jane Rowe. She was out of options. She had no money to travel to one of the six states where abortion was legal, and she didn't have the money to pay for abortion. And so she was in a position where her life wasn't at stake, but she knew she didn't want to carry the pregnancy to term, and she didn't know what to do. And so she turned, she turned to a set of lawyers. She ended up finding these, these young, very idealistic lawyers by the name of Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey. And she wanted to take some type of legal action. She thought it was unfair that it was only in the circumstance where she was near death that she would be able to have an abortion. Now, these lawyers were very young. They were only a few years older than Norma McCorvey was. They were in their mid-20s. And they were looking for the perfect plaintiff to challenge the Texas abortion laws. Now, abortion has been criminalized at this point for over 100 years, just over 100 years. They ended up filing Roe v. Wade, Roe refers to the plaintiff, Jane Roe, and Wade is the defendant, Henry Wade, who is the Texas district attorney charged with enforcing abortion laws. So that's where the names Roe and Wade come from. Roe was a pseudonym. Obviously, her name is Norma McCorvey, but she didn't want to use her real name, so they called her, instead of Jane Doe, they called her Jane Roe. That's how we have those names. So these lawyers were arguing that women had a constitutionally protected right to privacy in their reproductive decisions, meaning that they had a right to choose whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term. They also argued that the Texas law was too vague for doctors to follow, and ultimately that the decision of whether or not to terminate a pregnancy should be made by the woman and her doctor, not the state. So that's what these two lawyers were arguing. I like that. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) So the district court agreed, but it was immediately appealed and it went to the Supreme Court. So just a very quick rundown of the way the court system works, if this is helpful Mm -hmm. for those who might not know. There are different levels of courts. So a case will be brought to the first level. Depending on what the conclusion is, either side can appeal. If they do appeal, it goes to the next highest rung of the court system. And it keeps on going up in rank until it hits the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court takes on that case, they are the final arbiter. What they say goes, and it is binding on every single lower court. 
So it is tremendously powerful. It is the be-all, end-all in the U.S. And we have the same thing here. We have the same structure. So we have a Canadian Supreme Court. This is the American Supreme Court. So basically, they challenged this law. The first court that they went to agreed with them and said, yes, women do have this constitutionally protected right via the right to privacy. But the state appealed that. It went to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court also agreed with these lawyers. They said that the 14th Amendment ensures a right to privacy, and that protects a pregnant woman's choice whether or not to have an abortion. But in Roe v. Wade, they set out certain limits. So they said the right to an abortion isn't absolute. Doesn't mean you can choose at any point at any time. They set up a trimester framework. So the Supreme Court said in the first trimester, the state may not regulate the abortion decision. This is solely within the decision-making power of the woman and her physician. In the second trimester, the state can impose some regulations, but only those that are reasonably related to the mother's health. And in the third, once the fetus reaches viability, the state can regulate abortion or ban it completely, so long as there are exceptions for when the life of the mother is at risk. So this is what the Supreme Court said in Roe. They said there is a constitutionally protected right to abortion with limits, and the limits depend on the trimester. Now, just to give you a very quick um, example of what happened immediately after legalization, in New York State, the maternal mortality rate dropped 45% once abortion was legalized. Whoa, yeah. 45%? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so many people thought, okay, this has reached the Supreme Court. This is, like I said, the final arbiter. The abortion debate is done because of course over the past hundred years, it had been criminalized. There were debates. Some people were saying we should get the right to abortion. During the thalidomide scandal and the rubella epidemic, women were saying we need a right to abortion. But of course there were opponents who said, no, you shouldn't. And so now the Supreme Court has declared, yes, women do. And a lot of people thought, okay, the abortion debate is over. In fact, not at all. This was really, this is often where we start the story. And so this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do that whole first episode was just to show that there's so much before Roe. But often when we think about abortion in the U.S., we think about from the 1970s to today, and that's mm-hmm. it. But really there's, there's way more to the story. But here we are, and now this is really where pro-life movements, quote-unquote pro-life, what I call anti-abortion movements start to really gain some traction. Now, what's important to know is that the right to abortion is not the same thing as having access to abortion. It was an amazing win for those who thought that women had the right to choose. But at the same time, it's all well and good if abortion is legal. But if you can't actually find a clinic or you can't pay for an abortion, or you can't travel to the clinic, then what's the point of having You don't actually have access, yeah. Exactly, so right and access, very, very different things. At this point, in the early 70s, pro-lifers, quote-unquote pro-lifers, had, by all intents and purposes, lost. A woman's right to choose superseded what they saw as the sanctity of fetal life or the rights of the fetus. But it didn't mean that their efforts to criminalize abortion stopped. Instead, they just changed tactics. So whereas 
the fight was happening at the Supreme Court level. The fight was about rights. The fight was about the right to choose or the right to life is really the way the debate was framed. After that, they said, okay, well, we've kind of lost on those grounds, but let's take a different tactic. So almost immediately after Roe was passed, anti-abortion advocates started passing laws that made abortions harder to get. So it was no longer about criminalizing it outright, but instead creating incremental restrictions in an effort to undermine Roe. People talk about this as death by a thousand cuts. So between 1973 and 2021, states enacted more than 1,336 abortion restrictions. Now, the rhetoric of fetal personhood was still at issue. That was still something that we were talking about. But the laws were actually framed in terms of the cost of abortion and the benefit that legal changes would bring to women and their families. So again, they really kind of changed course. They were like, okay, well, maybe now talking about the sanctity of life isn't going to win the fight. So instead, we're going to talk about women's health and the safety of abortions and the cost of abortions. And so this is how the next several decades of legal challenges took place. Do you have any questions about Roe or does that make sense? I think that makes sense. Was there, when it was overturned, obviously it has to be unanimous, I'm assuming, in the Supreme Court. No, it just has to be majority rules. Yeah. So was there, did it take a long time or was it unanimous? Like, how did that even happen? When it was overturned in 2022? Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So right now we're just talking about the original law. Okay. We will talk about that though. Okay. And I so, want you to explain that because yeah. I'm confused as to how that even transpired. Totally. So the answer is yes, it took a long time. And that's what I want to get into next okay. is really over the course of 50 years, the way that Roe was undermined and chipped away at. Because of course it wasn't overnight. It wasn't that there was another legal case that happened and the Supreme Court took a look at it and said, you know, actually we, we changed our mind about Roe. Mm -hmm. That happened eventually. That happened in 2022. But Roe was, you'll hear this term a lot, the law of the land. That was the overarching law in the US for 50 years. But even though that was on the large scale in the books, you know, the law that was in place or the right that we had in place, public attitudes really started to shift. So I want to take us through four specific laws just to illustrate the way that things changed from the early 70s to the 2020s. The first was in 1976. So Roe is 1973. This is three years later. This is a really famous law called the Hyde Amendment. This banned the use of federal funds for abortions. So the objection here was that the government was using taxpayer money to fund abortions, and those that were insured by Medicaid then wouldn't have coverage for abortion services. So again, think about, we're not, there's no language here about life of the fetus. This is all about, well, okay, abortions are legal. That's great. That's fine. But we shouldn't use taxpayers' dollars. If you want to get an abortion, fine, but pay for it. Why is money such a topic in abortion? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a topic in everything. But again, 
morphed, right? Right now, the the issue was like, well, who's paying for it? I'm not paying for it. Mm-hmm. I'm not paying for Olivia to go get an abortion. Mm-hmm. No, excuse me. Right. Don't use my tax dollars. Okay. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think it's also like peeling back the layers and seeing what the actual crux of the issue is. Like we talk about fetal life. It's not to say that some people don't genuinely really care about that, but there are also other motivations that are at play. And so what's important to know here is that this disproportionately impacted poor women of color. About 30% of black women in America and 24% of Hispanic women were enrolled in Medicaid compared to only 14% of white women. So what this was doing was it was changing access to abortion, but it was changing it more so for a certain group of people. Unsurprisingly. For sure. And so we see the way these disparities are being continued. Mm -hmm. The next big challenge came in 1992. This is called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Now, in Pennsylvania, there was a law that required a minor to seek parental consent for having an abortion, and they required married women to notify their husbands and a 24-hour waiting period before performing abortion. So again, we're not saying that abortion is illegal, but this law is creating restrictions so now, I mean, it's crazy that this is happening in the early 90s. Like, a, a married woman in Pennsylvania had to notify her husband about her own... He has to be own, like, sure, that's fine yeah. with me. And if he doesn't, like, sign off, mm-hmm. she can't get it? Yeah, exactly. So again, oh. we're thinking about the obstacles that they're putting in place to make it harder to get. Mm-hmm. Even the 24-hour waiting period seems neutral at its face, but when you really think about it, imagine you take a day off work... You make arrangements to go to the abortion clinic. Maybe you need childcare for other children that you have. And then you get there and they say, okay, great, come back tomorrow. Right. So it's putting obstacles in place to make abortions less and less easy to get. And this is what happened in in Pennsylvania at the time. So the local Planned Parenthood actually brought a suit against the governor And it was appealed to the Supreme Court. So the same process that happened with Roe. There was a state-level case. It went up to the Supreme Court, which is federal. This was thought by many to be a case that could overturn Roe because it's the same issues that are in front of the Supreme Court. And basically, the court system is iterative. So if you have a case that is about abortion and they decide one way, now 20 years later, there's another case about abortion. They could decide another way, and that's how... And that can imp- they can decide that, and it will impact Roe v. Wade directly. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't it just be case by case? Because there has to be some kind of governing legislation? Because they're talking about the same rights. Mm. Like, they're talking specifically about the right to abortion through the right to privacy. Right. So it, it's, it is the same case, really. I mean, it's a different... Obviously, it's a different individual case in terms of like Norma McCorvey wasn't involved in this one, but it's addressing the same issues. So are people bringing these cases being like, overturn it, overturn it, overturn it. See, this is bad. This is, oh my God, just let it be. Jesus. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And so often, that's why even when we think about in 1973, once Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington had Norma McCorvey come to her, they thought, On the other side, this is a side that we agree with, but still, they were like, okay, this is the perfect plaintiff, and we hope it goes to the Supreme Court, because this is an opportunity for us to repeal the Texas law that was in place. So that's how the law works, and that's why we don't have, 
you know, laws aren't written in stone forever. That's how they change and evolve. It's a slow process, but th these are the mechanisms that we use to change them. Right. And so if a case with similar enough circumstances comes up to the Supreme Court, then they can change their mind. And if they change their mind, that then invalidates what was said before, because now they're saying, this is what we decide now. Right. That's so, old news. <laughs> exactly. That was then, this is now. Yeah. So people thought, is this going to overturn Roe? What is going to happen? It didn't. Luckily. For now. For, for then. <laughs> but they changed the standard of Roe. So before it was, you have a right to abortion, but only within certain limits depending on the trimester. Now, what the court said was that you do have a right to abortion, but instead of a trimester framework, the standard was now an undue burden test, meaning they took that whole trimester thing, scrapped it. Now what they said was a law will only be invalid if the purpose or effect is to put substantial obstacles in the path of women seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability. So they're basically saying after viability, states can do whatever they want. Before viability, they can create laws that put obstacles in place, but only if the obstacle doesn't create an undue burden. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm going to need you to... I'm, I'm lost a little bit here. Okay. So what's tough about it is that we don't really know what an undue burden looks like. Kill me. Yeah. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> Again, it's murky. Yeah. So that's why the law is so... It's such a tangled web that we weave because... What does that actually mean? We don't know until certain cases come up and the courts decide. So the law is sort of two-pronged. There are laws in the books, and then there's the way that we interpret those laws. But interpretations can be different. And so the law says this is the standard, undue burden. In, they don't give an example of what that means. So now if a case comes about, the matter at hand is, is this an undue burden? Maybe yes, maybe no. So states are now imposing new laws that restrict abortion care. And the states are arguing, this doesn't pose an undue burden. This is fine. Whereas the abortion clinic might challenge that law and say, actually, no, that does pose an undue burden. So that's what the legal challenges were then about after Casey. So now do you have to fight for the fact that it is an yes. undue burden, basically? So exactly. say, hypothetically, I get pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant at this time, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to flash back. Mm -hmm. I have to now prove that it is an undue burden or else I, people are like, nope, you don't qualify. Whereas before this, yeah. I could just say, hey, I don't want this. This was an, an, an oopsie. And please take me through the process. Now there's another layer, almost like there was previously from when you had to convince that it was... Is it kind of like we're going back in time again? A little bit. So it wasn't individual women that had to prove that there was an under, undue burden. But the idea is in the states, individual states can institute law. They can create law. But the law has to conform to the Supreme Court, to the Constitution. It has to meet those standards. So now what the Supreme Court is saying is that states can create laws, but the new standard that it has to uphold is the undue burden test, meaning a law will only be unconstitutional, a law will only be not allowed if it creates an undue burden. 
So it's being, legal challenges do happen from individual cases, but it's not being worked out. The woman doesn't have to specifically prove every time right. that it is an undue burden on her. Okay. It's more so like if a legal challenge comes about, if someone challenges a new law that comes about and says, no, this law is creating immense burden for women, that's where the argument is going to be taking place. Then the Supreme Court will rule what is a burden, what is not. And so again, it's really murky territory. It's very confusing. And it created a lot of confusion because now basically the idea was that states have a little bit more leeway. Whereas with the trimester framework, when they were trying to create their laws, in the third trimester they could. They had every right. The state had every right to create a law banning abortion. In the second, not so much. And in the first, they couldn't even touch it. Early on in gestation, a law that banned abortion was blatantly unconstitutional. Whereas now, with the undue burden framework, they're saying after viability, you can do whatever you want in your state. Pre-viability, you can create regulation if you want to, but that regulation can't create an undue burden. Where's the viability line? Like when is when? that? Mm-hmm. That's another great question because over time, that line is getting pushed further and further back. Mm. So now it's about 22-ish weeks with immense medical intervention. So the main thing we need to understand from this is just it's, again, making the decision and the process and the accessibility harder. You're, you're giving more hoops to jump through. You're also giving more power to other people to make that decision for you and less to the person who's trying to get the abortion themselves. Yeah, and the idea too is that technically Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land at this time, but under Roe, the states have more power to restrict abortion. Right. Whereas at Roe, when that was decided in 1973, the states had their hands were kind of tied. They could only do so much. They could only restrict so much. Now they have way more latitude because all they have to prove is that it's not a burden, right? Which is scary. Which is scary. very frustrating. 100%. Especially when it's your body. I don't want the state deciding what I'm doing. Exactly. And so basically this new case was giving the state more power to create more restrictions. That's okay. kind of the nuts and bolts of it. I am clear now. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for asking. It's it's very complicated, and it's tough not to get into like all of the sort of constitutional law, which is it's too detailed. And, and I know if I'm wondering, yeah. there's definitely someone listening that's like, "What did yeah. you just say?" And the fact of the matter too is that it's purposely confusing. Mm-hmm. Like the states didn't always know how to interpret it, but the idea here is that now they have more latitude. They can create more laws that might restrict abortion, and it is still technically legal. Right it still fits within the law of the land. So now the standard has changed in Roe and we're brought up to 2007. So in 2007, there was a case called Gonzalez v. Carthart. So now after Casey, states are creating more and more abortion restrictions. So you went from 76 to 2007? I went from 76, 92, 2007. Thank you, 92, yeah. okay. So in 2007, a state tried to pass what they called a partial birth abortion. These are the terms that they used. This is not a medical term. Doctors don't use the term partial birth. It's political, it's inflammatory, and it was actually created by the National Right to Life Committee. So I just want to be clear on whose term this is. But the law was banning, quote, partial birth abortions. Now, what's so confusing here is that 
over the course of this legal challenge, they were trying to ban a specific procedure called dilation and extraction. This is one that I mentioned at the top of the episode. This is where the provider dilates the cervix and removes the fetal tissue intact. Often this is performed later on in pregnancy, meaning usually before viability still, so not past sort of 20 weeks. In rare cases, it might be. But typically this isn't done in the first trimester. This is sort of like a last resort if it needs to happen. And so the reason that this procedure came about was because the typical dilation and evacuation, while very safe, there is a chance of damaging the cervix, which can lead to blood loss. And so surgeons created this new technique where instead of inserting the instrument and breaking up the fetal tissue in the womb, they're able to remove the fetal tissue intact, as I said. Now, what's super confusing is that pro-choice and anti-abortionists disagree on how many procedures take place, at what point in pregnancy this procedure is happening, and what exactly happens during the procedure. Little trigger warning here, because the language is quite uh, upsetting. So the National Right to Life Committee, in describing partial birth abortions, said, quote, Ugh, it's, very, it's, it's very upsetting to read, but we're going to sort of deconstruct it a little bit. Quote, abortionist removes all but the head of the living baby from the mother's womb. The baby's head is stabbed with a pair of scissors and the brains are suctioned out to collapse the head to make it easier to remove the dead baby from the mother's womb. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah. So now this brings us back to what we talked about right at the top of the episode, which is that we're using language to really paint a certain picture. They're talking about baby. They're talking about a head. They're talking about, they're getting you to picture a full-term infant. That's exactly what I pictured. I like, I couldn't help but picture something while you were mm -hmm. against my will of while course. you were talking. Mm -hmm. And that makes me feel sick. It makes me feel so uncomfortable. Absolutely. It paints an incredibly gruesome picture on purpose, I'm assuming. Absolutely. And so Anti-abortionists use this emotionally evocative language to garner sympathy and to paint a very specific picture. They're trying to talk about abortion as if it's something closer to infanticide. That's where discourses about murder come into play because you're thinking about a baby that would have survived if not for this procedure. You literally are thinking of decapitating a baby. Yeah. That's exactly what you think of. The truth is... This procedure, dilation and extraction, happens in 0.2% of abortions. So they're trying to criminalize something that is happening in 0.2%, significantly less than 1% of all abortions. Most of these procedures, most of the 0.2, it's only like a few thousand that happen annually, are performed before viability. So the fetus is not developed enough to live outside of the womb. Mm -hmm. It doesn't know what's going on. It's not even, I mean, again, I'm, I'm sure there are going to be people that disagree with me on this, right. but it's not a baby in the way that we think of a baby. Right. It's, right. it's truly uh, still sometimes a collection of cells that are growing into a fetus, right? It's a fetus. It's growing into what will one day likely be a baby, but it's not at this point yet. There's also, I mean, we could get into a discussion of 
whether or not the fetus is separate from the mother. Right. This is something that has been debated, will continue to be debated. It's something that we think of as very different in different cultures. We've normalized the idea that the fetus is its own entity. It is separate from the mother from the earliest points of gestation. That's kind of how the conversation goes today. When, how did we come to think about that? Is that the truth? Is that our set of beliefs? Interestingly enough, there's one researcher who does uh, research in non-Western contexts. So she was doing a study. Abortion in this place was criminalized and it was considered a sin. And so she talked to these women about their beliefs. Why was it a sin? What was happening? Even though it was rarely prosecuted. She talked to them a lot about their ideas about personhood and the fetus and whether or not the fetus was a person. And they all said, no, the fetus is not a person. What's growing inside my belly during pregnancy isn't a person to me. And she said, well, then why is it a sin? And the women said, it's a sin of self-mutilation. Abortion is self-mutilation. Whoa. And so who are we to say which way of framing it is correct, right? They saw what we see as a fetus to be part and parcel of the woman. And it wasn't until after birth that the fetus becomes a person. Whereas today, Mm -hmm. especially in the West, we have discourses about life starting at conception. That's not the way everyone sees it. That's not the way it's been seen over time. So I just want to kind of put that into context, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, this is happening, but questions for me at least about when life starts aren't things that can be decided by medicine and by technology. To me, that's very much a philosophical decision or a moral decision, maybe a religious decision, but these aren't things that we can necessarily nail down. Mm -hmm. But people try. And so another really important aspect of this specific procedure is that this is only performed when the mother's life is at risk, or the fetus has serious abnormalities that don't present themselves until later on in pregnancy. One example is hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain, which you don't know that a fetus has until after the first trimester, typically. And so, again, this procedure isn't something that women are opting to have. Often it's very traumatic. It's not something that they want to do. It's not something that the doctor wants to perform. But if your life is at risk or if the fetus is non-viable and can't continue to grow, sometimes these are procedures that are put in place for a reason. And so what I want to show here with this law is that we're banning things or there were efforts to ban procedures that almost never happened, but that are extremely inflammatory and garner so much sympathy for the anti-abortion cause. Mm -hmm. Now, this brings us to 2016. This is a law that many people might have heard of. This is HB2 in Texas. The law is called HB2. This required that all abortions, both surgical and medicine abortion, or medication abortions, are done in ambulatory surgical centers, which are basically mini hospitals, and that the doctors who perform abortions have to have adm- admission privileges to local hospitals. So again, the details of this regulation are ostensibly to protect women 
at face value, you're like, okay, that sounds pretty good. We're safe. Yeah. We're Mm -hmm. making these environments safer. We're making them like mini hospitals. Great. Virtually all medical professionals disagree. These are seen as unnecessary and counterproductive measures that are needlessly expensive and actually put women's health clinics out of business. Mm. They create delays that sometimes push abortions into the second trimester. Right. Because now you're even, again, removing that accessibility or you're just adding another hoop. It's adding another hoop. Exactly. And it's adding a hoop that at face value sounds great. It sounds neutral. We're talking about safety. But when you think about it, it's unnecessary. They don't need those safety precautions. So what it is, is extra financial strain on the actual clinic. And the result is that fewer and fewer clinics can actually operate, which means longer wait times. It means that women don't have abortions, right? Which is essentially the goal. And it's the anti-abortion community that's pushing this. Yes. No surprise there, right? right? Like clearly there are hidden motives, but it's, it almost reminds me of you, if you can't beat them, join them. Mm -hmm. And they're like, they're not joining, but they're, but they're not what they were trying to pass before was failing. So now they're just painting a different picture. Right. And again, you're trying to make it sound good mm-hmm. and nice and like, we're, we're there for the woman. Yay. Let's keep everybody safe. Right. But what's really going on under the hood. Exactly. And so one thing I really want us to sit with for a minute is what does it actually mean to protect women? Our health and safety issues actually a priority of these laws because if they were why not focus on the fact that Texas has now this is a Texas law that we're talking about Texas has the lowest rates of healthcare coverage in the nation one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy Texas has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world black mothers are four times more likely to die than white mothers from complications in pregnancy and this is due to a host of different issues structural racism, the lack of investment in communities where Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people live, lack of access to reproductive care and abortion services, and also the day-to-day exposure that racism actually deteriorates health and advances aging on a biological level. So there are all of these reasons why there is this Black maternal mortality crisis in the U.S. right now, and that's something we can talk about in another episode. But I just want us to think about all of these laws at face value are neutral. We're talking about health. We're talking about safety. We're talking about protecting babies. All of these things that sound good. We all want those things. But in practice, end up being harmful. And just to recap, there are some that require parents, or sorry, require minors to seek parental consent, a woman to receive consent from her husband, the 24-hour waiting period. There were also laws that were passed that required women to get ultrasounds. So in some states, a doctor must make a woman listen to the embryo's cardiac activity, which is often incorrectly described as a heartbeat, and narrate the detailed description of the ultrasound even if she objects. I know. Think about how traumatic that is. I can't... I cannot imagine... I'm just... That makes me so angry because I'm I'm like it's so obvious what you're trying to do just let her make the fucking decision like and you're like no listen to heartbeat I want you to picture exactly what you're doing I want you to think about this I want you to feel shameful I want you to feel disgusting I want you to feel horrible I just I can't imagine being forced to do that when you're already 
like we talk about this with Emma all the time, how you're already so emotional about an abortion. It's already a very heavy, difficult decision. There's already so much shame and guilt. And now they're like, listen, again, they're just trying to paint such a, it's just, it frustrates me so, I don't even, frustrating is not even the word. It's so much worse than that. But I just, that's so traumatizing for someone to go through. I don't understand why that's a thing deeply traumatizing. And that's why the purpose of these laws is to scare and shame women into changing their minds. Yeah. Point blank. That's what it is. And what's interesting too, you mentioned sort of the heartbeat early on. So we're going to shortly talk about something, uh, another law in Texas in 2021, but early on in gestation, there will be cardiac activity. These are just electrical impulses. Often sort of before like eight weeks, roughly in gestation, there isn't like a full heart organ. So it's described as a heartbeat. But again, think about the way in which language is being used as a tool. Also the way imagery is being used as a tool. We can all probably think about walking by an abortion protest and seeing these like bloody, horrific images of full-term, almost looking infants. And then also think about the woman who's subjected to an ultrasound who has to visualize the fetus inside her own body. And the tactic there is to scare them and to shame them. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's atrocious, but this is what's happening and this is what's been happening. And this is all while Roe v. Wade is still in place. Yeah. Roe v. Wade is still, like I said, the law of the land. Abortions are still legal, but now restrictions are being created to limit that accessibility, to make it harder, to make it more traumatic. Mm -hmm. Because really the effort here was make abortions less possible at any cost. Here they were greenlighting more and more restrictions until the perfect case came along that would once again challenge the constitutionality of Roe. There were two such cases, one in 2021 and one in 2022 that did this. But we'll talk about that on the next episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Root and Remedy podcast. If you like this episode and you find our information helpful, then it would mean the world to us if you would leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast. Whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google, or somewhere else, just click that rating and review button and leave five stars. That allows us to continue to bring you great guests, free information in the women's health field, and get this podcast out to more people who need it. And of course, if you want to explore any of our courses, our one-on-one services or any other resources we have, you can find everything at rootandremedywellness.com.